0: Hey, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Before we jump into this lesson, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to those of you who support this ministry. It really struck me this morning that there there really are just a handful of people who have been supporters of this ministry really since like for a year or two years, some even three years. People like... Tim and April, people like Nicole or Mark and Ricarda or uh, others who have been here since the beginning supporting this ministry, Will and Lorna and other people like that. And and then there are people who've just jumped in in the last handful of months and started supporting uh, the listeners' commentary and the podcast, this whole online Bible teaching ministry. And I am just deeply, deeply grateful to each and every one of you who Uh, invest your resources in a ministry like this and make it possible. So I don't take that for granted. And I just wanted to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your support and for making this ministry possible. All right, in this lesson, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 30. And now we're actually getting close to Jerusalem. Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem since Luke chapter 9, but we're getting close now. And over the next few sections, what Luke is going to do is just stitch together a handful of snapshots from the life of Jesus, showing his interaction with people that really highlight several of the themes that we've seen already. Uh, Themes like blessing on the lowly and the marginalized, or challenge for the rich and the powerful. And all of this is zeroing in on and focusing on being a disciple of Jesus. So we see phrases like entering the kingdom of God, inheriting eternal life, being saved. They show up several times in these snapshots. And once again, we get Jesus' vision for who can attain these things. Who can inherit the the kingdom of God? Who, Who can be saved. And in the middle of all these snapshots, we see Jesus, one particular snapshot, Jesus interacting with his disciples, explaining what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem when they finally arrive. And it's not the victory celebration they would have expected, because following Jesus as Messiah is really very different from what they had been led to believe by their cultural expectations. And now in this recording, we're going to look specifically at the first two of those snapshots. And these first two snapshots really contrast little children, babies even, and a wealthy influential ruler and raises the question, which kind of person is closer to the kingdom of God? So let's jump into Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. It reads like this. Now they were bringing even their babies to him so that he could touch them. What we're talking about here is parents bringing their little tiny children, their little infants even to Jesus when it says so that he could touch them, meaning so that he could lay his hands on them and bless them, perhaps even hoping that his blessing will protect them from death because the infant mortality rate was so high in their world. And so they're bringing their little tiny ones to Jesus so that he can lay his hands on them and bless them. But, the middle of verse eight, or verse 15, but when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. So we have parents bringing their babies, we have the disciples now realizing what's going on, and they actually begin rebuking the parents and trying to chase them off. And the reason for that is likely because they thought there were more important people for Jesus to deal with than these little tiny babies. It's not because babies were unloved or unvalued. Jews had a very close, tight family unit. They loved their children. So it's not that babies were unloved. It's just that by society's standards, they they weren't important. They weren't like obviously capable of doing much. They didn't have a whole lot of status. They were low on the social spectrum. And I actually think we see kind of some holdovers of that same sort of thing. Even in our world today, in most cultures really, like if you think of a wealthy, powerful, influential businessman or a wealthy, influential leader of some port, some, some type, he, he doesn't or she doesn't you know, you don't tend to think of them having time for little ones. They don't have time for children. They might do a photo op with a child. But really, spending time with children, interacting with children, uh, no, you need to be hobnobbing with and interacting with and networking with other powerful people who can advance your status and advance your career, who can advance your image, uh, increase your wealth, you know, further your business, right? Right. Well, that's the idea here. The disciples are rebuking these parents because Jesus is the Messiah and he's got more important people to deal with and more important issues to deal with than just blessing your little children. That's really the sense going on here. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 16, Jesus called for the little ones saying, so Jesus actually calls for the kids to come to him. Not only does he have time, he he carved out a little bit of time for him, he wants them to come to him. So he called for the little ones to come to him saying, allow the children to come to me and do not forbid them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Notice that last line. Jesus is welcoming the the children. He is trying to get his disciples to see things differently. He, you know, wants them to quit forbidding them, in fact, calling them to himself, because the kingdom of God belongs to people like children, people that are small, lowly, unimportant, little people. The kingdom of God belongs to those kinds of people. In fact, notice verse 17, Jesus says, truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What he means by that is to receive the kingdom of God as though one were a child. I think that's the best way to read that phrase. To receive the kingdom of God like a child is to receive it as though one were a child. Now, what does that mean? We have to be careful not to import contemporary ideas about children into a phrase like this, and contemporary ideas. I'm thinking of things like, you know, the trustfulness of children. This is how they trust people. The simplicity of children. They, they're just such simple and, you know, vulnerable and open. The lack of self consciousness of children. The lack of guile. Like those are all sort of contemporary ideals about children. Some of them are somewhat sentimental and all of that we have to be careful not to import those into a phrase like this because they didn't have those views of children. When Jesus says to receive it as though one were a child, the key idea is smallness and lowliness of children, that, uh, that they were low uh, by social standards, that they were little people. That's the idea. And in view of the preceding parable and the preceding context right before this, um, we have to see this as people that are like the tax collector, the humble people who don't exalt themselves. That's where the preceding context ended. Um, that, that it's, it's the humble people, the lowly people like the tax collector who don't exalt themselves like the Pharisee in that parable. It's the lowly ones who plead for mercy and atonement rather than making much of themselves and having such a high view of themselves. That's what he means to receive it like a little child. We receive it with this humility, this sense of lowliness, this sense of neediness and dependence. Those were the kinds of ideas that would have filled their minds when Jesus said what he did about children here. Now, this stands then in, in contrast to the character in the next snapshot. The next snapshot shows a wealthy and important person, a person who has both status and money and influence, and he's unwilling to divest himself of those things. So let's look at snapshot number two here, picking up in verse 18. It says this, now a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This fellow is traditionally called the rich young ruler. He's just called a ruler here, but we learn in verse 23 that he's extremely wealthy And in Matthew 19, 20, he's called a young man. So you put all that together and that's where you get the rich young ruler. Uh, Also here in Luke, he's responding to what Jesus had just said about kids and the kingdom of God. It's as if he's saying, what will it take for someone like me to get into the kingdom of God to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' first response is actually to speak to the way the man had addressed Jesus. So before he answers his question, Jesus addresses his his title that he gave Jesus, good teacher. Notice what Jesus says in verse 19. But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Perhaps Jesus perceived the use of flattery that was so common in these kinds of situations, right? Where good teacher was sort of flattery to try to get his attention, to weasel his way in, right? To to make him feel good so that maybe he would give him you know his his attention and, and share some good word with him perhaps jesus sensed that this young man was actually fishing for a bit of a compliment himself oh i'm not just good you're good as well look at you you've got all this status and power right maybe he was fishing for a bit of a, a compliment himself so whatever the reason jesus lets him know that truly only god is good so you really need to be careful how you think about goodness whether you're talking about your own goodness or anybody else's goodness. Let's be honest about goodness, Jesus is saying. There's really only one who's perfectly and truly good, and that would be God himself. So that's Jesus' initial response is just to force this guy to say, quit using empty flattery, right? Don't be fishing for a compliment. Think more clearly about goodness. Only God is truly good. Then Jesus goes on in verse 20 and responds to his question. What can I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question. And Jesus says in verse 20, You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Jesus lists off five of the Ten Commandments, specifically five of the commandments that fit under the Love Your Neighbor column. In the Ten Commandments, you have the first handful of commandments that are Love the Lord your God commands. The, the, the second chunk of commandments, the Ten Commandments, are the Love Your Neighbor Commandments. Jesus lists out five of the ten that fit in the Love Your Neighbor column. And my guess is it's likely that Jesus is dealing with a perceived problem. Actually, a problem that's still very common when you combine power and wealth. When you combine those two things uh, in people, people that have those really often don't care for others. It's not always the case. That's a generalization. But oftentimes they don't have time for others. They really don't care about others, especially the little people, the lowly people who, to whom the kingdom of God belongs, as Jesus just said. So my guess is Jesus is listing off these commands because he, he recognizes this is a real problem when you combine wealth and power. Well, how does this rich young man respond to what Jesus says? Well, verse 21 Jesus has listed off these commandments, and this young man said, All these things I've kept from my youth. He's convinced he's passed the test with flying colors. He's like the 99 in Jesus' parable of the sheep in uh, Luke 15 that think they need no repentance. Or he's like the older brother there in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son, who's always done what his father wanted or needed. Or he's like the Pharisee in the previous parable who boasted in prayer to God about his own righteousness. That's where this young man is at. He's convinced he's, he's good. He's kept all the commandments just fine. But Jesus, he, Jesus knows better. He knows that wealth and status are a real problem for this young man, especially in relationship to the poor and the lowly around him. So Jesus is actually going to challenge him At the very heart of his deepest problem. Look at verse 22. Now when Jesus heard this. He said to him. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess. And distribute the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Jesus has said. In previous teachings. Where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Jesus has said. You cannot serve God and mammon, God and wealth. So here, Jesus gives this man a test to really see, or to help this man see, where his treasure really is. Is his true treasure wealth, or is it the kingdom of God? Will he prize wealth the most, or will he prize Jesus, who's bringing the kingdom of God into the world? Will he prize him more? Where is this man's true treasure? Uh, Now, before we look at how this man responds and some more details here, let me just take a brief aside and ask this question. Can you be wealthy and follow Jesus? Jesus says to this man, sell all your possessions, distribute it to the poor. Can you be wealthy and follow Jesus? And the answer is yes, you can. You see wealthy Christians in the book of Acts. Um, You see wealthy Christians, for example, in Acts chapter 2, even selling off tracts of their land so that they can give to the poor and take care of the needy people among them in the church. Uh, We see Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, give instructions to the wealthy Christians and how they should look at their wealth and how they should handle their wealth. And so, yes, you can be wealthy and follow Jesus. That's not the point of verse 22. The point isn't for all of us to get rid of all of our wealth. That's not what we have to do to follow Jesus. The, the point really is this, is that following Jesus will radically affect your view of wealth and will affect your use of wealth. Both of those things will be deeply transformed by following Jesus. And when Jesus says what he says to this man, it is a case-specific situation to a man that Jesus can tell has a real problem. He's trying to serve God and mammon, God and wealth. And Jesus is trying to get him to see that. And Jesus is trying to get him to see who really is your God. Who really do you serve? If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to have to look at your wealth differently. You're going to have to use it differently. And that means you need to change your relationship to money. And so no... You don't have to get rid of all your money to serve Jesus. Yes, you can be wealthy and follow Jesus, but it will radically affect your view of wealth and your use of wealth. Well, how does this man respond to Jesus' test? Notice what he does, verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. So when it came down to choosing Jesus or wealth, he chooses wealth. He wants to enter the kingdom of God. He wants to inherit eternal life, but he doesn't want to give up his wealth to do it. And now it's clear, if push comes to shove, who he actually loves more, what he actually loves more. Is it God and his kingdom, or is it wealth? Well, it's wealth. He became very sad because he actually loves his wealth so much that he doesn't want to have to get rid of it. And Jesus, verse 24, looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We tend to see wealth as the gateway to the good life. In Jesus' day, a man like This and others around him would have seen wealth as the gateway to the good life. And not only the gateway to the good life, proof that he was blessed by God. That was kind of the tendency. Like since since wealth tended to do with land, since the land had been promised by God and and his promise was conditioned on their faithfulness to the covenant. If you were wealthy and you had land and you had all this possessions, obviously God surely blessed you. And so it was evidence of God's favor. In their thought world, very often. And so we tend to see it as the gateway to the good life. They tended to see it as a blessing from God. Jesus says it's a hindrance. It gets in the way. Notice what he says there that how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's so hard, in fact, that it's actually impossible. Um, wealth is a hindrance to entering God's kingdom. Why? Because it it actually makes it hard for someone to entrust themselves to God's kingdom. It makes it hard for them to lower themselves and depend on God himself and his rule and his reign and his kingship. Uh, And that's one of the key traits about entering the kingdom of God like a child is lowliness and dependence. And wealth makes it hard to do that. Wealth has power. And that power captivates our identity and our view of life, and our security, and even our status. And so wealth makes it hard to seek first the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus here says it makes it so hard it's impossible. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. Some have suggested that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye. But the reality is there's zero evidence that such a gate ever existed. So if you ever hear that, just know, that's pure speculation. There's no evidence of that. The real point of Jesus' imagery here is, like, he's offering an extreme example to say, if you trust in wealth, or if you love wealth, it'll be impossible for you to entrust yourself to and to experience the reign and rule of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the literal eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Not because wealth, uh, you can't be wealthy and be a Christian, but because it's it's virtually impossible for you to entrust yourself to and experience the reign and rule of God in your life. You've got wealth and you tend to depend on that and trust that. Uh, Those who heard Jesus say this was, was like, well then who can be saved? Since wealth tended to to represent God's favor and God's blessing, right? Like, then if it's hard for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God, who can be saved? And Jesus says in verse 27 the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. This guy was so wealthy and so seemingly pious that if he can't be saved, who can't? Well, guess what? God is so powerful that he can even rescue wealthy people. He can draw them into his kingdom. God specializes in impossible things like saving people, all people, wealthy people and poor people alike can be saved. Why? Because that's what God is good at. God specializes in impossible things like saving people. So God can help people, even wealthy people like this young man, be willing to say, I'm going to serve God and not mammon. Now, Jesus is having this conversation in front of a crowd of people with this rich young ruler. Jesus' disciples are part of that crowd. And so now Peter blurts out his response to this discussion. Verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we've left our homes and followed you. So this man became sad, walks away because he doesn't want to give it up. But Peter's like, But we did that. We left our businesses, we left our homes. Uh, We've left our security, and we followed you. So Jesus' challenge to the rich man was to relinquish his wealth and follow Jesus. And Peter affirms that he and the other disciples have indeed done that. They've prized Jesus over their previous life, their fishing boats, their fishing nets, their family business, their family expectations, all those things. They've actually prized Jesus over all of that. And Jesus, in verse 29, then said to Peter and to the other disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus affirms them. He affirms that indeed, if you've left your homes, your family, your business, if you've opened your hands and let Let loose of those things and prized God and his kingdom, Jesus and his kingdom, over family and all those other things. If you've done that, then indeed, Jesus says, um, that you will actually receive um, many times back in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Um, So Jesus affirms them and assures them that anybody who has relinquished their life before Christ, and divested themselves of even family for the sake of God's kingdom, will receive so much more back, both now and in the age to come. And at the heart of it, they'll get eternal life. And that eternal life will affect their life in the present time, and it'll affect their life, obviously, forever and ever. So this text reminds us that the kingdom of God belongs to the little ones, to people who will lower themselves, not exalt themselves to people who can depend on God, not depend on themselves or on their possessions. This text reminds us that discipleship requires letting go, that we have to divest ourselves of whatever we're clinging to for life and meaning whatever we're grabbing hold of and holding onto for our sense of security or status or importance, that we have to divest ourselves of those things and grab hold of Jesus and his kingship. What's our true treasure? Where is our identity found? This text reminds us that we need to make Jesus not just a thing we prize, but the thing we prize and we're willing to let go of all other things that we might, we might have him and we might enter into his kingdom.